You find yourself at The Hurt Take. I am your host, Reese Dobigan. Welcome back for another round, boys and girls. Yes, we took a hiatus last week. I apologize. I had my boy Alan Stringer over. We were talking about Blade Runner 2049, which, uh, quite honestly, was a lot more interesting than the prospect of talking about UFC Gdansk. Gdansk. I don't know. It's Polish. I don't speak Polish. There's a lot of silent letters in the Polish language, so I'm just not going to really try. So I apologize. We were gone, but we're back now. That's all that matters. I have returned. What are we going to talk about? I didn't want to talk. I didn't want to preview UFC Gdansk. There, I said it. But I am going to recap it. Because it actually ended up having kind of a big moment. Darren Till versus Donald Cerrone, the headliner of the card. Man, Darren Till. He's a guy that a lot of people were excited about. An up-and-comer in the welterweight division. You know, people were having high hopes. I mean, on one hand, you had to have high hopes because he was a welterweight who wasn't older than 30 years old. There's not a lot of those guys around, quite honestly. He was undefeated in the UFC heading into this fight. He had four, three, three wins, three wins and a draw. Uh, a draw against Nicholas Dalby that, you know, in all honesty, he probably could have won that fight. He, but unfortunately, he hurt his shoulder uh, right before the third round. So, very impressive. And so a lot of people had high hopes for this kid. Young, talented, and then of course, the residual McGregor effect. He could talk. He had the gift of gab. He had the funky accent that sounded... Cool to American ears. So a lot of people were excited to see what this guy could do with a step up in competition. And man, did he ever look good. Because he did not take just a little step up in competition. He took on Donald Cowboy Cerrone. A guy who's been in the UFC little under six years, really, but fought, what, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three, twenty-four, twenty-five times in the UFC. This was a big jump up in competition for Darren Till. And not only is Cerrone a 25-fight veteran in the UFC... He's been a title contender before. He's had long win streaks. A nine-fight win streak at one point that earned him a title shot, which he ultimately you know, came back to earth. But this is a guy who has competed at the highest level at lightweight, made the jump up to welterweight, and looked good there too. So Darren Till was really taking a big jump up in competition, and... He looked fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Calm, composed. 
you know, he gave Cerrone some serious fits. Uh, and the funny thing is about this is, is Cerrone's got a reputation for starting slow. Not, you know, being a slow starter, not a, not, he doesn't get out of the gates too quick. And Darren Till is a, is a low volume striker. So it was going to be interesting to see, could Darren Till employ a game plan that saw him take advantage of Cerrone's weaknesses that way? And he did. He did. He didn't necessarily do it with volume. He did it with good pressure. He stayed in front of Cerrone. Didn't give him a lot of a room to move around the cage. Uh, cut good angles so Cerrone, you know, didn't have places to go. And that put Cerrone under pressure. And you saw what happened. Till just, that, that finishing sequence was just nasty. Cut off the cage. Cerrone had nowhere to go trying to back out. And Till landed uh, some beautiful lefts. I think he, I think there was a nasty elbow in there. And, and you know. Absolutely, if you've seen pictures of Cerrone's face, his nose is a complete mess. And then Till just wailed on him, and it, Cerrone just covered up, and, and that was it. I mean, he was he he was almost done before he hit the mat. The way he covered up, he looked really hurt. So that was great. It was great to see Darren Till finally someone step up. Now the question, of course... With Donald Cerrone is, is is this the beginning of the end? Because you're talking about a guy, yeah, 25 fights in six years in the UFC, and now he's on the first multi-fight losing streak of his career. I mean, going into this fight, he was on really the first. He lost back-to-back fights for the first time uh, ever in his career, and now he's on the first multi-fight losing streak. You know, not a lot of, of, test, of, of studies have been done about you know, career longevity in MMA. There's a lot of reasons for that. Unlike sports like, you know, uh, hockey or, or the traditional big sports, guys don't come out around the same age. You can become a professional MMA fighter at 28 or 30, depending on what your discipline was. As Maybe you're a wrestler or you fought uh, Taekwondo and you went for the Olympics and then, you know, you don't start your MMA career until a bit later. So there's not really a lot of studies about the wear and tear, and when guys kind of hit a wall. But Donald, Donald Cerrone is one of those guys where, with the sheer volume of fights he takes, the sheer mileage on him, you got to think that he's going to hit a wall soon and hit it hard. And now this is three in a row and two of them by by knockouts. And that Robbie Lawler fight was a... a, a a pretty good war. He took some serious damage in that. You know, maybe, maybe this is, and you know, Cerrone's always had a bit of a, a a glass abdomen, as they say. Maybe this is it. Maybe, I mean, how long is he going to stick around for? Is really the question. He's got a name. They headlined a card with the guy. He's a hardcore fan's dream. He's a casual fan's all know who he is. He's got all the marketability in the world. You know, he'll probably stick around, but at what cost? And he's still, and I know this is jumping ahead, but you still got to win. So are we, are we going to still want to watch Donald Cerrone in the UFC headlining a card if he's lost three of his next four? Or maybe then, you know, lost five of his next six or, 
at what point are, are, are we not going to care about Donald Cerrone anymore? I don't know. I don't know. But we certainly care about Darren Till now. And as if that wasn't enough, Mike Perry was in the house. Platinum Mike Perry, the wild man. Oh, God. Mike Perry's just an idiot. An idiot. But in all those kind of good ways that make him just super fascinating to watch. Totally heartless in the cage. Some of his knockouts are just vicious. And he looks like he's straight out of American History X. I mean, the tats. He's got tats on his face. So Mike Perry was there, cage side. And for whatever reason... He hops up on the cage and he's outside the cage and Darren Till and him are jawing back and forth through the... The only thing that separated them was, was the cage fence. Oh, it was a beautiful moment. I can't remember the last time I've seen something like that. That wasn't arranged by the UFC. It was classic. Absolutely classic. Of course, it doesn't make any sense because Mike Perry is currently scheduled to fight Santiago Ponzinibbio. But hey... Again, the residual McGregor effect. Guys are trying to set up their next fights. They're trying to look a couple fights down the road. And I tell you what, man, Mike Perry is on a streak. If Darren Till is looking for a fast track to a top five fight, Mike Perry is a scalp to do it on. Because he's a fast riser too. You clip that guy, and especially if you clip that guy after he's taken out Santiago Ponzinibbio, who is also a pretty exciting fighter right now. Whew. Darren Tills, he's, he's picking his fights well. I have to say he's managing his career really, really well. Meanwhile, elsewhere on the card, Conor McGregor's buddy. Artem Lobov. Artem. Artem. Is there a more useless 15 minutes of fame hanger-on guy? I, honestly. Honestly. Yeah, he brings the action and he likes to slug it out, but he's he's he does nothing for you as a promotion. He's Conor McGregor's friend. That's all he is. And he showed it once again. He comes in there and looks not so impressive. So you know what Artem Lobov thinks? Artem Lobov thinks he might want to do what his brother, buddy, Conor McGregor did and move into boxing. He might just ask the UFC for his release so he can go into boxing. As if we, most people, we didn't really necessarily even want McGregor to fight Mayweather. What makes Lobov think that we want to see him box? And he's already got a fight in mind. He said, and I quote, Polly Magellanaji wouldn't be a bad fight. I know he's after big paydays. Big paydays? What the fuck are you smoking? You are not a payday, Artem Lobov. I don't know where his mind is at. Who the hell would want to see him fight Polly Mags? Not a lot of people want to see Polly Mags fight at all right now, unless it's Conor McGregor, and even then, ah, uh, I don't know that there'd be that big an audience for that thing. Nobody's paying Artem Lobov 
paying to see Artem Lobov fight. The UFC isn't even putting him in prime marketing position. He's not a draw. I don't know what he thinks he's, his value is. But him and Pauly Mags is not a big payday fight for either one of them. Ugh, just the worst. All right, I have enough with Gdanks. I've had enough of UFC Gdanks. Let's jump on to different topics. Bigger and better news. Apparently, UFC 217 is not selling well, according to the insider, Joe Rogan. Rogan said that... Uh, that he's hearing from inside sources that the card is not selling well so far. And he says, in his belief, it's because the people that are into the UFC right now, quote, they're post-Ronda Rousey, post-Conor McGregor, the casual fan. So he's saying they don't know who GSP is. It's been four years since GSP's been gone. I think that's a good point. I think that's a good point. The sport has evolved... Uh, not just within the cage, but also in terms of how fights are promoted. You know, there was a time Anderson Silva and GSP were these big draws. But, like, within the current framework of what a draw is, they're not anymore. They're not the kind of people you want to see fight. They're not these big, brash, uh, uh, larger-than-life personalities like Ronda was, like McGregor is. You know, and Anderson Silva was kind of a part of that changing of the game when when he fought with Chael Sonnen. You know, Chael completely ushered in that that new kind of era. He really helped shift the paradigm towards how fighters could sell fights. And now, the GSPs of the world, the Anderson Silvas, those types, the guys who were big draws back when George St. Pierre was the cream of the crop, the welterweight king, it's changed. Those guys aren't necessarily big draws anymore to the casual fan. And so I'm thinking that that probably has an impact on it. I got to think that that has an impact on it. It doesn't help that, you know, because this is this is the thing. This is the point about about casual fans. They're the ones who ultimately are going to make those pay-per-view buys that turn a pay-per-view into a great card for the UFC from a business standpoint. They're the ones the UFC is aiming for, the casual fan. So you gotta you gotta think about these thing these things from the perspective of the casual fan. How do you market to the casual fan? You know, I think too often, especially in the media, people will talk about what the UFC needs to do to sell a card. How the UFC needs to build out a card. But are they coming from the perspective of the casual fan? Because if everything is about making more money, making more money, the people who are gonna the people who are gonna are going to make those buys that put you over the edge, that really make it a business success, those are the casual fans, not the hardcores. We've kind of established what the hardcore fan base pay-per-view, you know. Uh, 
number is. It's you know somewhere between probably 150 to to 200 pay per view buys. You know, you look at at fights that some people would say are uh, fan, uh, you know, hardcore fan delights. UFC 216 at the top. That was a, a hardcore fan's dream of a card. UFC 213, uh, I believe, with with uh, Whitaker and and Romero. Like that was one of the best fights the UFC put on this year in terms of on paper. And both of those cards did worse than two hundred thousand buys. Okay, let's let's go back. UFC two eleven estimated three hundred thousand buys. Two twelve. 200,000 buys, 213, 150,000 buys, UFC 214, that was Jones Cormier, that was 860,000 buys, that was a big one, but then you go UFC 215, 100,000 buys, UFC 216, 120,000 buys, I mean that's not, good. those are not really good numbers, and they're trending down. So how is a GSP versus Michael Bisping fight going to market to the casual fan? Neither one of those guys is really a larger-than-life personality. I mean, Bisping kind of is. But he is from the perspective of if you're a fight fan of any sorts, you're going to, like, you you want to see what Michael Bisping's going to do. But not if you're a casual fan. Not the mainstream commercial fan. So if, if 217 is not trending well, I mean, that has to be worrisome. That has to be worrisome. You know, with three three of the most recent pay-per-views are in the bottom quarter of pay-per-views all time in terms of buys. And 217 is not trending well, according to Joe Rogan. That's got to be a worry. You know, what's worse, you've got three title fights on that card. So it's not even just a question of, is it GSP or is it Michael Bisping? This could be, an if it's a bad... If it's a bad buy rate, it could be an indictment on Joanna and Jacek's selling ability, Cody Garbrandt's ability to sell. You know, and and and, and Dana White has said that Cody Garbrandt he thinks could be the next UFC star. Well, shit! If this card does not does not sell well, how can he be the next big star? So going to be very interesting to see what happens there. I, for one, of course, I will be watching. I, I think it'll be very interesting to see how George returns, how much he'll look like the old George. You know, I, he was so great during his career. He was so great. That alone is worth tuning in for me. You know, I, I wasn't happy with the way they marketed it, but... In an odd twist of fate, when they announced this fight, the middleweight division seemed to be at being put on a hold, on standstill as a result. You know, GSP versus Michael Bisbing meant that guys like Luke Rockhold had to sit and wait. Romero had to sit and wait. Whitaker had to sit and wait. Jacques Ray Souza had to sit and wait. Chris Weidman had to sit and wait. And what has happened since then? As if a stroke of luck for the UFC... Romero loses to Whitaker. 
So he's kind of out of the picture. Souza loses. He's kind of out of the picture. Whitaker gets hurt. So now he's the interim champion. But what's he get? He's not going to do anything until next year. And Luke Rockhold doesn't take a fight until most recently against David Branch. So now this fight isn't holding anything up, really. Now it's happening kind of at the right time. Amazing. Just amazing. I don't think people still like the idea of it, but it's just amazing that it's all worked out. You know, in a manner. Demetrius Johnson. The all-time winningest title holder in UFC history, or I guess I should say consecutive title defenses, has offered up his strategy for how to beat Brock Lesnar. That's right. During an interview with TMZ, DJ was asked if he could beat Brock Lesnar in a fight. Now, of course, DJ is not one to shy away. And he is a funny dude. If you actually if you actually pay attention to the stuff he says, he's he's a funny guy when he wants to when he talks up. He's got a personality. I loved it. I think he said he said that he would beat Brock Lesnar by going after liver kicks. He would liver kick him, force that thing to shut down. And then he would scamper up on his back and rear naked choke him out. Now, I don't know how big DJ is. Like, physically. Like, if they stood side by side. Like, would DJ be the size of Brock's torso? Like, would he even be able to get his arms around Brock Lesnar's throat for a rear naked? I doubt he could. He wouldn't be able to get his legs around his... That would... I would just pay to see him try to put Brock in a rear naked choke. Not to mention, what if Brock Lesnar was standing... When he put him in this rear naked and decided he was just going to drop right back on top of him. But I, I got to I have to, I got to give DJ credit. He answered the question like you'd expect Demetrius Johnson to answer the question. The guy was thinking, how could he actually win a fight? Against Brock Lesnar. This isn't like when, when Ronda Rousey said she would beat Cain Velasquez. And just sort of said it, and it was like, uh, okay, you know, what are you going to do to him? You're going to judo toss him? Or, like, like that's your strategy? Don't know about that. Demetrius Johnson kind of employs, like, of all the things, of all the ways to beat Brock Lesnar. I mean, that one makes sense. Like, what else is he going to do? Punch him in the chest? You know? Low kick him over and over and over and over again? No, no, no. He would be target a very specific part of the body, the liver. I love it. I love it. Now, DJ also said that uh, his advice for his fellow fighters is the importance of not taking damage. That's something DJ has been... I mean, you want to talk about as impressive as his his title defenses is how little he gets hurt how little time he has to miss because of injuries from fights i mean i can't think of the last time he had a medical suspension maybe it was recently but i i mean 
Maybe he stubbed his toe coming up the steps into the cage against Henry Zahuda or something. I don't know. But he rarely ever takes damage. Now, he used the Lando Venata Bobby Green fight, which was a fight of the night. Great, great, great fight. But of course, again, oftentimes when something is a fight of the night, it's because the two guys go to war and they hit each other a lot and they get hit. That is not the recipe for career longevity. We all know that. As fans, we want to see those guys do that. That's We love that stuff. But in the back of your mind, you're fully aware that guy's career is going to be shorter. So from a fighter's perspective, why would you want to do that? Some guys do. Maybe they get paid better, but your career is shorter. Would you rather fight more and get paid that way or get paid a little bit more in the fewer fights that you get or at least hoping? You know, if you get a performance bonus, yeah, that's great, but you're taking a lot of damage. You're missing out on fights. Maybe that's two or three fights you could have had otherwise. Now, in DJ's estimation... You know, he was saying kind of exactly that. You know, everyone, he said, quote, everyone in the back was like, oh, man, that's a sick fight. And he said, I'm like, dude, look at his face. That cannot be good for his brain. I'm just honest. He's got a great point. You know, I was thinking about it the other day. I was trying to think of NFL players. I'm a Chicago Bears fan. I know, have pity. But I was trying to think of players that were awesome 10 years ago that I really loved during some great Bears teams. And I was struggling to remember their names. And it was only the guys who had long careers that I could remember. You know, Charles Tillman, Brian Urlacher, Lance Briggs. But then there were guys like Nathan Vasher or, you know, Mike Brown, who had their time with the Bears, but ultimately it was cut short. Not necessarily because of injuries. In Mike Brown's case, yes, but... The point being that those guys, their careers didn't last very long. And so you struggle to remember them. Ten years from now, am I going to look back and say, oh yeah, Lando Venata, I remember him. Or will I remember the guys who had long careers? The guys who were on my brain for longer periods of time. You know, a great example is... um, now, see, I'm already racking my brain for this guy. Uh, Garcia. Leonard Garcia. People love Leonard Garcia. Banger, slugger. Went to war every time he was in the cage. But I don't remember anything about him anymore. I only remember him because I pay a lot of attention to the sport. And even then, I couldn't I couldn't tell you any of his big wins, any of his big fights. Cuz he went out there, he went to war and that was his that was his career. Apparently he fought 3 years ago. Wow. In legacy. Oh, okay, well. So in DJ's estimation, guys need to think about not taking damage. And even just from a strategic standpoint, Defense is its own reward. If you go in there and you have great defense, maybe it won't win you fights, but you're damn well sure 
that it will keep you in a fight all the time. You will always be in a fight if you have good defense. All right, we're bringing it back this week. I know you've been waiting for this. It's the Q rating. We haven't done the Q rating in a while. But in honor of our good friend, Mitch Bayless, former co-host, we'll have him back on the show here sometime soon. Mitch told me, he said, listen, you got to do a Q rating, and it's got to be on Conor McGregor. And I said to him, Conor McGregor, what are you talking about? He said, didn't you see all that stuff outside the cage? And I went, yeah, actually, you know what? Perfect. So, if you are not aware, during Artem Lobov's Artem's fight at UFC Gdansk, the notorious one was in the house. He was drunk as a skunk. And he was literally circling the cage with the action, yelling instructions to Artem Lobov. And it got to the point that Mark Goddard, the referee, had to stop the fight to tell McGregor to stop and go back to his seat. Goddard's rationale was that McGregor was essentially acting as a fourth cornerman. If he had stayed in his feet, it would have been fine. But because he kept getting up and following Artem around, it was like he had a personal cornerman. Some people thought it was funny, uh, but not so much. I think Q rating, UFC Gdansk, McGregor's goes down. And that's amazing. He's he's had a rough go of it lately, I think, with some of the stories since the, the Mayweather stuff. And this is just capping it off. boy, Because he was really drunk. Uh, he was caught on camera after dropping some homophobic slurs to Artem Lobov, which is not a great look for him, for the UFC. After all that stuff that happened with Mayweather, he's now perpetuating this bad image. You know, some of the video of him before the fight, even backstage... He had an entourage of people around. He was drunk. He was ignoring people. He was going this way and that and just looked like he was just too big for his britches. Like, it seems like the celebrity is really catching up with him now. It's really getting to his head, you know? And apparently the only person who's willing to stand up to him and tell him to stop is Mark Goddard. Because it doesn't look that the UFC's done it. doesn't look like Dana White's done it. Q rating down, Conor McGregor. Not a good look. All right, last thing. Real quick, we're going to run through some fights that have been made. We got Emil Meek versus Kamara Usman has been put on tap. I like this fight. It's good getting Usman some kind of name recognition to build his stock. You know, Emil Meek has that whole Viking thing going. Hardcore fans kind of know who he is, so that'll be a good scalp for Usman if he can get through that test. And it keeps the weight, welterweight division trending towards a younger fighter. That top 10 is very, very old. So they need to start moving in that direction. I like this fight. I like this fight. It's a bit of a step back for Usman. He's in the top 10. He could try and get someone in the top 5. But if no one's available, apparently they're not. Mio Meek's a good consolation prize. Elsewhere, Ovis St. Preux. Ovis Von Fluke is replacing Patrick Cummins and his mutant staff infection against Corey Anderson at UFC 217. 
This fight has me about as excited as stubbing my toe on the end of a table. Boring. Don't know what the point... It's... OSP is treading water. Corey Anderson's treading water. These are two guys. I mean, it makes sense from a certain perspective. One of them has to go in a upwards direction. So I guess that's good. But I have zero interest in this fight. Aljamain Sterling versus Rani Yaha. I have no idea if I said that name right. Rani Yaha? Whatever. At UFC Fresno in December. Aljamain seems to be... I don't know. He's... I thought that he would ascend quicker in the bantamweight division. But now he's taken some strange fights... I guess maybe fighting a no-namer type of guy is the maybe this is the Donald Cerrone approach. Approach, you know, fight often, get paid often. I think I think Sterling has said that's a bit of his philosophy right now. So we'll see. But Yaha isn't exactly a big jump up. So I I will be very interested to see where on the card that ends up being placed. That will be a very indicative sign of what the UFC's thinking about Aljamain Sterling and, and where his star is going to be here soon. So that's it. That's all. That's the Hurt Take, the MMA podcast by the fans for the fans. Thank you very much for joining me. I have been your host, Reese Dobigan. I am out.